thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. Medical education, like medicine and healthcare in general, is changing here at UMass Medical School. One of the leaders on the front lines shaping that next generation of medical education is Dr. Ann Larkin. She is a Senior Associate Dean for Educational Affairs, Vice Chair and Associate Professor of Surgery and a practicing surgeon. Lots of titles, lots of responsibilities. Welcome, Dr. Larkin. Thank you very much, Jen, for having me. Nice to have you here. So I do want to talk about, of course, your practice and your primary roles here at UMass Medical School. But I thought before we got into that, um, I'm really curious when you first knew that medicine was something for you. Mm, that is a, uh, it's a tough question. I took a very circuitous route to medicine. I'll tell you that uh, from the time I was a little girl, my father had all daughters. He was a product of the Depression, you know, very much a male-oriented uh, society back in those days. But with his three girls, he always told us all we could, we could do whatever we wanted to do, whatever we put our heads to, we could do. So um, I had an interest in medicine from the time I was a little girl, but I also had an interest in music and mm. singing and playing the piano. So um, I actually initially wanted to be a Broadway star. How about that? So, <laughs> yep. So I went to my undergraduate degrees in voice performance, actually, because uh, I just needed to follow my dream. Once I got into college, though, I realized that uh, that career was going to be a lot tougher than I initially anticipated. And where did you be. go to college? I went to University of Missouri yeah. in Kansas City, and um, I grew up in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So uh, I stuck close to home, stuck close to my roots. But once I sort of realized that music was not going to be in my future, it was all about medicine. So I worked to do what I had to do to get my prerequisites in place, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. So at what point did you realize that the music wasn't maybe, you know, people get mm -hmm. nervous that mm -hmm. they might get too far down a path mm -hmm. and then not mm -hmm. be able to turn around. So at what point did you sort of make that switch? It was actually, I would say, probably the beginning of my sophomore year in college, I realized that, that I needed to make a, a, a good decision, and that good decision was going to be to do what it took to get into medical school. But I didn't want to give up music, so I went ahead and got my degree in music, even so. So I, I stuck to my commitment, but I opened another door as like well. Like the singing scientist or something. That's right, that's right. <laughs> and so after medical school, you served in the U.S. Navy. How did that did. happen? Well, so again, my father being a product of the, of the Depression, uh, he, he knew that he was not going to have the resources to get me through medical school. So I took an, a Navy scholarship, essentially a, an Armed Forces Health Profession scholarship. And uh, that allowed me to graduate from medical school with zero debt, despite being at uh, really a, a great private medical school. So um, it was a huge benefit not only for me but for my family as well. When your dad told you and your sisters that you could do anything, was he particularly enlightened? Was he ahead of his time or was he just super proud of his daughters and saw um, your potential? I would say both. I would, he was an engineer and, um, and so he had a very scientific mind all along. Uh, I will tell you that his dream for all three of us was that we go to medical school. So, Isn't so that funny? my two older sisters chose not to take that path, uh -huh. but I did, and uh, I know it made them really happy in the in the end. So. Maybe that was in the back of your head when when you were in your freshman year. Could of college. be, could so be. So, would you recommend military service? 
I mean, what are the traits that, um, that you both took to that and took away from it? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great question. So I think, um, yes, I would recommend military service, not only for people who want to go through medical school, but in general. I mean, I think it's a great way to sort of find yourself. Uh, the traits I brought to it, I think, were commitment and dedication. What I took away from it, though, was much greater than that. Uh, it taught me leadership skills. It taught me how to be resilient. It taught me um, how to get a job done. It taught me how to uh, deal with other people that just weren't from my background because it's a very diverse community. Where did you serve and how did you serve? Um, so I did two active duty tours. One was after my internship and for that one I was in Sicily right outside of Catania. I served on an air base there for two years as a general medical officer. Now for that one, remember, I had only done an internship, yeah. nothing else. So I graduated from medical school, I did an internship, and then I went off taking care of active duty members for whatever they needed done. I also had the opportunity there to uh, head up their emergency department. It was a fairly new hospital. There was a break in their emergency department head, and so they asked me to, to take it over. That was a great learning experience. Mm. Then I came back and I finished my residency. And then at that point, I was a surgeon and they said, uh, you know, we want you on a carrier. So mm. I, I went on an aircraft carrier. I was there for a little over a year. I uh, deployed to the Middle East, to the Persian Gulf. It was during peacetime. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it was, uh, I would not say scary, but I would say intense. There is no safer place, I think, uh, in terms of the practice of safety than on an aircraft carrier. Everyone is very attuned to what your job is, yeah. doing your job, and doing it safely. Because if you're not, there are huge consequences. Huge consequences. And right. so that carried down to the health facilities as well. So you're doing mm -hmm. surgery on the ship. You're mm -hmm. doing whatever is needed, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason I ask you about that military service uh, era of your life is because some people listening to this may know that UMass Medical School is um, expanding our partnership mm -hmm. with the VA of Central Western Massachusetts. We're actually about to break ground on a new clinic that will open in 2021. Mm -hmm. So veterans from Central and Western Mass will be able to come here to this campus and get their care. First, I want to know your thoughts about that, but I'm also curious what opportunities that might open up for students, medical students. I'm so excited about this for the school. I really am. I think that our veterans deserve the most care that we can give them. And this opportunity for UMass to partner with the VA and open this facility for veterans in our area is just immensely gratifying for me as a, as a UMass person, but also as a veteran myself. Um, I got to tell you, having many people in my family who have been in the military, many of whom access VA services, there's just almost nothing that is more important for them. In terms of our students, I got to tell you, medical schools who have VA uh, experiences are just able to teach their students about a, just a really, not a different way of practicing medicine, but a different way of serving their community. Mm -hmm in the context of a population of patients that they might not always see. And then what that does is it, it makes them more open 
to, because not all veterans actually go to a VA for their care, it makes them more open to and, and sensitive to a veteran's needs when they're just seeing them in their office, even if it's not in the context of a VA. So I am a huge uh, supporter of VA experiences for students, and I think this new facility is going to give us the opportunity to just uh, really enhance what we offer uh, our students in that regard. It will literally be just a three-minute walk right. from the medical school building right on the same campus. So um, we'll certainly be talking more about that as 2021 approaches and as we get ready to cut the ribbon on that. So we did talk about how medical education is changing. And I think most people who aren't physicians maybe don't think about that on a daily basis, understandably so. So the way you learned medicine is probably not the way you teach it. What are some of the things that have changed in a generation? Mm. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Oh, okay, good. Okay, thanks very much there. for your time. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, so uh, it, there is so much more that we have to teach students now, I think, than we did before. And that's the case not only for, 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 undergraduate medical students, people who are in medical school, but also for residents, people who have already graduated from medical school and now they're in their specialty. The content is massive and it's increasing all the time. Remember, nothing goes away. Yeah, it just, it's additive. It, we keep learning things and we keep I learning new ways. I think about that a lot as we mm -hmm. hear about, you know, gun violence mm -hmm. or opioids or, you know, take your pick every week there's something in the news and you think, gosh, my doctor should be asking me about that. Right. <laughs> Right, and yet it takes us a while to sort of iteratively change how we're getting that content across to the medical students. The other thing that's very different is that um, students and faculty used to be very content with a very um, uh, big, big audiences, lectures, etc. We know now that our students actually don't learn as well that way as they do through problem-based learning and small group teaching. So we really are moving away from the big lecture hall sorts of settings, although those will still hold, I think, a small, important role, but much, much less than it has been in the past. Now students need to be active. They need to be self-directing their learning. They need to be interacting in small groups with uh, faculty guiding their discussion, but not talking at them, mm -hmm. more learning with them. I'll tell you, I, I work as a, one of the faculty members in one of our courses called um, Doctoring in Clinical Skills One, And in that, as a surgeon, I know that there's a lot that I don't know anymore. I probably used to know it, but I don't know it anymore. And I learn so much just from preparing for my sessions with our students and then facilitating those discussions with my faculty partner, Dr. Bennett, in our sessions, it's been immensely valuable for me. And the other thing I did is I filled out my healthcare proxy there, oh. which I had never done before. <laughs> really? But that was one of their exercises, and so I did it along with them. And so you're guiding, and what are the things that you, you as teacher now, want to emphasize? What, what are the, like the core parts of being a physician in the 21st century? Our, our medical knowledge still needs to be impeccable but there are so many other parts to being a physician that, that were not emphasized when I was a medical student. How to communicate with our patients, how to help our patients to communicate with us, mm -hmm. how to um, bring in all of the other aspects of their lives in their community, in their culture, because all of that brings a lot to bear on how they uh, experience disease, 
how they experience healthcare, mm. and how then we can help them lead healthier lives, essentially. One of the things you just touched on it there that probably didn't get a lot of attention 20 years ago is the social determinants mm -hmm. of health. That's so right. how your zip code mm -hmm. really can mm -hmm. dictate more about how healthy mm -hmm. you are than your DNA code. So what does that mean for somebody who may have heard that sentence before, like social determinants, what does that mean? Well, to me, it means that uh, we need to be mindful of the very issue that you just touched on, which is not every citizen in Worcester County or in Massachusetts or in the United States has the same access to the same high quality care. And, uh, or they may have environmental exposures that others do not, have, uh, do not have exposure to. So all of those little details are things that uh, can dramatically affect not only how a patient works through their health, but even what, what diseases they might actually get that, that other people in another zip code, say, mm. would not. Really? Access to health uh, exercise facilities or all kinds of things, just um, not being able to afford. Uh, some of the things that uh, other people in another zip code might be able to afford. Right. If their neighborhood's not safe, they may not get right. out to go for a jog. That's right. If they don't have a food mm -hmm. store nearby, they may not be able to buy fresh produce. Right. And we know that the good foods for us, the healthiest foods, are also the most expensive. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's really challenging for our patients that are, um, you know, just at a different place in their lives. I think that our student, medical students and the nursing students do try through service projects and through mm -hmm. learning to, mm -hmm. to address some of those things, uh, those challenges that their patients face. What, are there any that stand out to you or what, like, what more could be done either by the health system or by individual caregivers? Um, that's, a, that's another really good question, Jen. I, I do think that the important, despite the fact that Massachusetts has insurance for everyone, our free clinics actually still continue to play a major role in how we care for people in our community. One of the biggest reasons for that, Jen, is that we have one of the highest immigrant and refugee populations in the state. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when people are coming into the United States, their situations are sometimes dire, and they don't yet have access to, to health care at all. And so our free clinics in the area really play a major role and our students are immensely involved in those in those efforts and they the, our students get a lot out of that too like I can't tell you how many times they come back and they say oh I learned this about such and such a disease but also I got to meet this family that yeah. just came here from you know Pick Uganda or wherever so yeah the connections are so important and then the students or whoever else is working with those families can help connect them to the services that they may not even know exist exactly mm -hmm. So um, interprofessionalism, I think, is one thing that we didn't touch on. Um, most people who have been to a doctor or been to spent time in a hospital know that it's a whole team of mm -hmm. people with different titles who are taking care of you, um, and it's really taught that way here. And why does that matter in terms of how it shapes future physicians? Another example of how very different medical education now is now from the way that it uh, has been in the past. Healthcare is no longer, again, I'll use surgeons as an example, it's no longer a situation of the surgeon being the captain of the ship and running the team and everything is as I say it's going to be. We know that patients get better care when it's a team environment 
where everybody's voice is heard in that environment, and yet it requires practice and skill to be able to, pra to, to, to actually practice that way. So here at UMass, we have a, a very, I think a very important commitment to providing uh, not only adequate, but um, more expansive interprofessional education than uh, many other schools in the area, I think. Um, and again, I say, I say this because I've experienced some other schools, and, and again, I think it's real strength of ours. Um, we also have the benefit of having the Graduate School of Nursing right here, the, uh, the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences right here. We have a, a school of pharmacology in the city. We have a PA program in the city. So there are all kinds of opportunities that we are leveraging to be able to teach our students that there is um, there are many different right ways of doing things depending on what perspective you're approaching it from. So for example, one of the experiences that we have for our students is during DCS1, that class that I was talking about, uh, they are required to participate in uh, an educational experience in which they work with someone who's not a doctor. They shadow them, they're right there with them, they interview the patients uh, uh, separately from that provider. So they might work with a social worker, they might work with a psychologist, they might work with a PA, uh -huh. they might work with a uh, charge nurse. Okay. And all of those provide perspectives. That's really great. Um, so the medical school is just putting the finishing touches on a strategic plan that will sort of lay out our priorities for the next five years. In the educational realm, what has you most excited? about the next, the horizon for the next five years? Uh, two things, I think, for me. One is the opportunity for a very different, innovative way of teaching medical students, utilizing online curriculum, expanding small groups and, uh, and problem-based learning. So that's one part of it. The other part of it, though, is expanding our interprofessional education so that it really becomes uh, more of a foundational piece rather than um, uh, on top of the foundation, if yeah. that makes any yep. sense. Uh, it, it really, again, it, it offers us so many opportunities. And this strategic plan, I think, emphasizes the opportunities that we have for uniqueness and for um, just providing an education that is out of this world for the medical students in the future. Because we know that the need is so great. Mm -hmm. There is a projected physician shortage, mm -hmm. and so the need is, is certainly there. Every, everybody hopefully has the opportunity to get great care. That's right. Dr. Larkin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jen. It's been a pleasure. Very exciting <laughs> for me. <laughs> Dr. Larkin uh, is the Senior Associate Dean for Educational Affairs at UMass Medical School. She's also Vice Chair and Associate Professor of Surgery and a Practicing Surgeon at UMass Memorial Medical Center. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.